Cool. This here is uh, Shul Andersen. He was a white majority Swedish person and is photographed here in the early 20th century with his spear. He belonged to the last generation of Swedish bear hunters who thought that rifles was some like new fashion nonsense. And he had killed around 40 bears, bears with a spear. A good friend of mine, uh, Ole Mullervan, he is from that same area and he's working on discovering the uh, ancient totemic kinship with bear that survived in this area in northern Sweden, almost down to our time, basically. Down in the 20th century, people in this area still wore bear masks and did bear dances and used spears for bear hunting. This is a kind of culture that wasn't really supposed to be there uh, because we, your descendants, white people such as Swedes, perhaps even iconically the Swedes, we are supposed to be modernists, rationalists in some sort of mirroring opposition to all that ooga booga, the primitive childish savagery that was associated primarily with the non-white others that were destined for colonial exploitation. We were not supposed to be animists who uh, offer beer to um, uh, to to a, 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 a sacred tree and to ancestor spirits on ancient grave sites and uphold complex totemic kinship relations between ourselves and others in the land. Um, but um, North European uh, traditional knowledge has had worked with a thor thoroughly sacralized landscapes, pervasive sacralization of different landscape formations, mountains, hills, rivers, specific forests. Um, uh, one particular important aspect uh, in Scandinavia I've noticed is water. Crossing water is often seen as a transition into the other world. And so islands are often sacred sites, fountains, lakes, and so on. There's also something about fog, actually. This sort of liminality of water in the air, a transition to the other world. Uh, an island veiled in fog, you know. Um, there's, there can also be like very singular aspects of the landscape, a particular tree, a remarkable stone, and the ways that you move in the landscape. Movement through the landscape is really important parts of um, uh, land connectedness, I would say, in traditional Nordic animisms. Uh, in fact, you could say when you read the folkloric records, like more or less the almost the entirety of the landscapes landscape seem permeated by uh, animacy. And this is quite closely tied in, in Northern Europe and Scandinavia, it's quite uh, closely tied to human activity. Um, this uh, agrarian practices, for instance, the sacredness of grave sites have sometimes had a quite amazing endurance. There are cases where archaeology shows that a grave site has been continuously in use or a little bit on off in use over 7,000 years. Um, quite an astonishing uh, continuity. And all this uh, landscape relating is clearly uh, rooted in animism. And I'm not going, going, going to go into details <laughs> with all this. Of course, it's impossible because it will be a life study. There is so much. You could study trees in Northern Europe, the relation to trees in Northern Europe, probably for the rest of your life and write. I don't know how much. Um, so I'm just going to give you some 
overall markers of the history of land connectedness in Northern Europe uh, and how uh, land connectedness has been compromised and perhaps speculate a little bit about how we may perhaps try to reclaim it. Uh, cool. The first big attack on uh, land connectedness in Northern Europe came with the uh, advent of Christianity. Uh, a religion, well, let me just see if I'm supposed to go one step ahead here. Yes, I was. A religion that tends a, to see quite strong division between the world and the divine. God in Christianity is something distant, something transcendent. He's not a being that lives in a hill and needs uh, humans to give him a bowl of beer from time to time. Um, and though everything is, of course, complex, and you can also find examples of uh, Christianity being used in ways that are indeed very an animist, then the, I, I would still say that there is a general tendency to, for instance, oppose the divinity of trees and rivers and hills and so on. Um, and Christianity arrived in Northern Europe, not so much, I would say, as a kind of this exterior colonizing force that some people tend to perhaps imagine, but as a belief system that was linked very much to power, actually. Uh, Christianity uh, was uh, necessary for state formation and monarchic power to consolidate in sort of the Middle Ages, the Iron Age Middle Ages. By becoming Christian, rulers ensured that, that they could change their status from being, in fact, the possible target of crusades to becoming uh, part of a European infrastructure power. They, they were move, able to move into feudalism. They could ally with other European uh, rulers and they could target others with crusades. So becoming Christian was an, uh, kind of a, a ruler power strategy, actually. Um, and uh, Christians employed a number of strategies uh, that I would say seems to target actually land, land connectedness in Northern Europe. One is destruction, destroying stuff. Another is appropriating and demonizing. Um, for instance, there are there are direct attacks where holy uh, groves on, on holy trees are being cut down, destroyed, or burned, uh, like Saint Boniface did it with uh, Thor's oak. Uh, but there are also aspects often of um, of appropriation, uh, as you see here, the the uh, Christ on the yelling stone, which is sometimes called the bat um, the. Um, Symbol of baptism of Denmark is the first uh, the king that connect that collect, kind of gathered the, the Danes into one kingdom. He put this Christ on the stone where he said that he he, he collected the kingdom, and he uh, and this Christ seemed to be sort of floating between branches. So there are speculations that he was subtly subcommunicating the previous deity Odin which was hanging on the tree. And he belonged to a dynasty that regarded Odin as their, um, as their uh, divine ancestor. So yeah, but this thing about cutting down a tree, for instance, um, then a whole a church can be built on top of it. This, in, in fact, here is, is an example of a church that was where archeological excavations showed the stump of a tree just below it. Um, a, a holy tree with uh, with uh, sacrifices around it. Um, there are also cases of uh, demoni uh, demonization. Um, one example is the raven 
uh, raven symbolism of the raven totem in Scandinavia. Um, this is a symbol of ancient kinship relation between humans and cohabitants of the land. Uh, and the raven flag, the raven standard that specific ruler uh, families carried, probably represented some sort of totemic kinship um, with uh, groups that uh, descended from raven, a little bit like what you find among Pacific Coast Native Americans. Uh, but when Christianity came, the raven then became this evil, cursed omen of death and misfortune. It was even labeled the apostle of Satan. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. It, so, yeah. Um, you also see uh, examples of making uh, invisible the animist landscape in the uh, or the animacy of the landscape in the handling of place names. In some some cases, the animist meanings disappear. Um, the the names that refer, for instance, to deities can be obliterated or perhaps replaced. Sometimes it's difficult to see what is just memory fading or where there's actually change going on. But you will find a, for instance, a Vodunstead becomes perhaps Wagonstead or something like that. Uh, that happens quite a lot. Cool. Um, let me see. There are also, and, and this sort of confrontational relation between these um, uh, different religions is also sort of um, remembered in mythology, is represented in mythology. And Odin's hill, such as this one on the island of Samsø, becomes the beast. It's simply called the beast. And people say that there's something dangerous inside it. Right, so uh, a demonization going on. In many places, it almost seems as if the landscape itself is objecting almost to the presence of churches. Big stones are said to have been thrown at the churches by trolls when the church was built. This is a very common myth that's found uh, in many, many places in Northern Europe. Or even um, uh, the ancient, ancient sacred lake Tiso or Tears Lake in Sealand, uh, which is a sacred site that stretches back, well, at least to the Iron Age, uh, perhaps even further. Um, but in folklore, the very presence of the, this lake becomes a punishment that some troll inflict on people because he was annoyed by uh, the noise of church bells. So, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a, a, a quite also a quite massive presence of these, uh, these legends where some farmer is on his way home and then he meets elves or trolls who are leaving the landscape because of all the noise and all the church bells and stuff like that. That's typically the reasons, the reason that the spirits uh, will be giving the farmer uh, in order to explain why they are, why they're leaving. And uh, yeah, so so this this sort of you say destruction or attack on land connectedness is actually something that has been going on quite uh, quite a while uh, and uh, and uh, it, it took centuries. It wasn't just Saint Boniface came and took down Thor's oak and then that was that. Um, the, the, it, it's a very, very long process to uh, rupture people's relation with their landscape. And uh, Christianity is also not the only culpable factor. There are others. Um, uh, and, and when you read folklore, you often read these little 
reports is these little descriptions they're barely narratives they aren't really a fairy tale it's just like almost like a little observation like a diary entry or something a guy is herding cattle and in normal animist fa fashion he enlists the subjectivity of the landscape in this project so the elves come and help him herding the cattle and he spends his days in the hills with cattle and elves hanging around with cattle and elves but then there's a sense in the little you know narrative that christianity tells him that it's wrong so he at some point he breaks off the relation that he has with this with the elves the the connection to the landscape of course and then of course the cattle are run all over the place um i would speculate that perhaps here there's even a bit of an incitament to perhaps modernize rationalize industrialize this cattle hold a process which would then in turn, push the elves, the connection to the land even further. Um, a farm is sold to new people. There used to be a sacred tree that held the spirit, the subjectivity belonging to this plot of land. And this spirit was always taking care of the well-being of the place and people was feeding it, giving it things. There was a social bond between the, this land spirit and, and the people living in the farm. But then the new people are Christian. So the man, he takes a silver button and put it in, in his rifle and he goes out and shoots the tree, kills the spirit. And then of course, everything goes to shit. Um, and perhaps I'm speculating again here, but does this aid then in forcing people to modernize, rationalize and industrialize farming? I don't know. Um, yeah, there are cases where these spots uh, seem to uh, kind of hubs in the landscape of subjectivity or uh, presence. They seem to sort of be reinvented in new ideologies, new ways. Their sacrality is sometimes somehow floating into new uh, languages, right? Uh, one important factor in Northern Europe is national romanticism. Uh, uh, this sort of idealizing of the past, and this has probably played a positive role in some ways in safeguarding some sacred site, sites from just being plowed down, which is what also regularly happen, uh, for instance. But, but however, there's also another side of this. The, you know, um, nationalism is very much a mixed cup, I think. My father told me that as a child, he came up to a dolmen, which is a sort of arrangement of standing stones from uh, prehistoric um, uh, standing stones, uh, sacred sites. And he came up there on May Day as a child, and there was remains of fire up there. Um, and people said that uh, in order to burn maypires, they had to do it in secret because it was considered to damage the national heritage site, right? So the culture that people have, the relation that people have to the site, which is the whole point of the site, <laughs> is, is sort of disregarded in favor of this sort of image, almost like I'm tempted to use the word Instagram sort of visual value of the of the site. So, um, so nationalism um, uh, can be have be a little bit of this meaty aid or language that perhaps some uh, sometimes has prevented people from from just plowing down and destroying sacred sites. But uh, but there are other 
there's other um, uh, aspects to it too. National romanticism, this is a famous uh, image that's regarded sort of the opening of romanticism, the wanderer über dem Nebelmeer, the wanderer over the sky, the sea of clouds. Um, this romanticism actually relishes the, um, the distance it is the distance between this man and the landscape that he's relishing. He's aesthetically distant from it. Uh, and this is a very, very, this is what is very not na uh, romanticist about uh, animism. Um, if he had been um, uh, animist, then he would get down in that distant landscape in the muck, you know, and with his immaculate suit and learn how to, you know, kill and disembowel something that he would like to eat <laughs> and figure out how that works out also ethically. That would be, that would be the, anim <laughs> the animist behavior, right? In Nordic myth, um, landscape, one landscape, Sealand, is created by actually, oh, that was wrong. Wow. Well, let me just try to go a little bit ahead here created by a goddess um, who plows the island Sealand out of Sweden uh, with these giant oxen that she has conceived and born with a giant, which is a kind of a remarkable sexual prowess actually for a goddess that was supposed to be associated with virginity. Um, but uh, she, she might be a sea goddess of sorts and perhaps related to Freya. There are different speculations of this, Gevion, uh, and she creates the land by this primordial sort of titanic agrarian act of plowing Sealand out of Sweden. And then in later history, some sort of uh, mermaid uh, emerges as a personification of the land. Is there a connection? Sea goddess, mermaid? I'm not sure there's a direct cultural transmission there, but perhaps the voice of the land being heard uh, by people, artists, uh, people started to think that the, the land was personified as a mermaid. Yeah, I kind of think that there's a, there's a voice they're hearing somehow. Uh, and this, of course, then later becomes the most famous object in Denmark, which is the Little Mermaid. Um, originally, this Little Mermaid, this figure, uh, represents a deserted sea spirit. Perhaps it, uh, it's actually a kind of a seal totem. Mermaids are uh, often seal sh shapeshifters that are often ancestors of families and so on. And in the original stories, the break between the human and this sea spirit or totem uh, causes collapse. Uh, the world collapses, kind of a Ragnarok-ish uh, scenario. But the very well-known retelling of the story from Hans Christian Andersen, that retells this rupture as naturalized. All of a sudden, she's kind of a little bit supposed to be deserted. She's sitting there outside Copenhagen in the urban landscape, longing for humanity to honor uh, the relation with her, but in Hans Christian Andersen's story, it's sort of supposed to be like that. The human prince that was her relation, he didn't fall in love with her. He fell in love with a human woman instead, and her love, the landscape's longing for a human relation is unfulfilled. And that this is what this um, strange and powerful little figure represents. There's another myth. Um, 
where another farm animal, a supernatural sow, is plowing through Jutland and give give uh, the land its its uh, shape. And this might, myth might be related to uh, Gevjun, who plows with, with these oxen. Uh, but uh, it's also, of course, related to pigs, uh, which are a very sacred, actually, and important animals in specific Nordic forms of uh, totemism here is Frey but also the goddess Freya the goddess of love one of her name her names was Seer the sow and note how enormous the discrepancy is between the sow as a name for Freya herself uh, and how uh, the discrepancy between that and how it would feel for us to name a woman a sow it's probably one of the most ugly thing we can imagine to say to a woman, right? So there's an incredible devalorization of this particular animal, which in Northern Europe is a very important life-giving animal. And I can't help seeing this rupture, uh, perhaps this rupture from this, this goddess and this animal in the land mirrored in um, modernization and rationalization and industrialization. Denmark has a population of about 6 million people, but today produces 30 million pigs for slaughter annually in rather atrocious conventional meat production systems. Um, you see how I sense that the rejection of the relation to the land here, in this case, the an animal that gives us life, the pig, seems to co coincide somehow or mirrors this industrialized uh, cruelty, I would say, uh, towards this animal. Uh, in a sense, the, 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 the disconnect between us and, and these animals represents this abandoned mermaid, this abandoned goddess, the disconnect with the land somehow. And I think this, 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 this little figure um the the mermaid is incredibly interesting and it's such a study in how contemporary sacralizing is emerging or perhaps even enshrining our rupture between humans and and, and the land in this unassuming but rather pretty little statue which exerts this incredible pull just a moment let me just zoom in at an on it again while I'm talking about it. I was supposed to be here when I was saying this. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, exerts this incredible pull on people. If you pass by the the place in Copenhagen where it is on a summer morning, then there will be like six or eight tourist buses there looking at it. It's it's it is as if it draws people like the Kaaba or something. This weird little figure. Um, West Africans who live in Copenhagen who are a, a tad less. Uh, thick-headed than, than the average Danes, they are sometimes actually afraid of her because they know that this is Mamiwata, the, uh, the goddess of the sea that uh, uh, contemporary Pentecostalist uh, Ghanaians or Nigerians will typically be afraid of. Uh, Orisha devotees, for instance, from Cuba or Brazil, they will sometimes put her on their altars for Oshun, the the uh, water goddess of love or they will even bring her flowers on the right days weirdly powerful image of our connection with the land and its ruptures and the land <clears throat> as 
deserted yet longing back for us in all in one one little uh image here um and for reasons that i'm not finished understanding i really don't know why this little woman is constantly being vandalized people can't constantly want to uh make political points or something by uh challenging her somehow or destroying her i mean we're talking about explosive attacks or all kinds of art performances or she has been beheaded three times where people sneak out there and saw off her head um um, in 2020, uh, she was spray painted with the words racist fish <laughs> in funny, in a truly idiotic way, I think. Uh, I <clears throat> identify as an anti-racist myself, um, but I have seen some really, really dumb and actually quite bigoted way of trying to be anti-racist. And I think, why the flip would this transatlantic, in fact, Afropean sort of water goddess figure be racist i don't really know anyway I, I, i'm not sure why people are doing this perhaps they feel a need to poke at the spirit of the land when they want to make a point or something um because the land i'm talking about southern scandinavia or the state denmark uh is in in actual fact a sea land it's not only the main island which is called sealand but denmark is in fact a sea more than a land, a sea interspersed with little islands. So this is, um, yeah. And I think my point with this little story is just that sacrality wants to be there. Subjectivity almost desperately calls for us. And there is a potential for sacralizing, which is very much there. And sometimes in unexpected places, this little figure is less than 100 years old, I think. Now nah, it's about 100 years old. I think it's early uh, 20th century. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's so weird because this figure is located at a place in the Copenhagen Harbor front where there are then other goddesses around that seem to mirror it. And all kinds of artists are making weird reproductions of her that sort of ironize or do whatever with her. There's a guy who, who, who did, she's called the Little Mermaid. He did the Big Mermaid. He, he thought it was, he felt sorry for all the Chinese tourists who were getting a little bit disappointed by this little statue. So he, he um, uh, ordered uh, also from China actually a huge kind of uh, stone figure that is <laughs> sort of kind of pornographic with really big boobs. And, and um, it's looking a little bit like that. And he put it somewhere in the ha harbor front. It is as if this, and, and there are also, also all kinds of modern art and stuff like that, as if this little figure that represents some sort of relating to the land is being explored and multiplying itself in ways that can be weird or vulgar or um activist uh, and so on um, <clears throat> and there are also other figures around her for instance the givion uh, the Gifion, uh, there's a huge statue of givion which means the giver and just at the other side there's a, a another goddess figure which represents dead sailors which in the nordic mythology would be ran the taker the the sea goddess that takes lives so uh, yeah and and the, it is as if these things have just emerged yeah anyway this is just some uh sort of uh speculations on uh 
on that particular little thing, which is interesting because it is so contemporary, uh, yet so, I would say, deeply rooted in myth, myth and deeply rooted in the landscape of the people uh, uh, where, uh, on the people of this, the, this particular land. And its location in the middle of the city, in the middle of the capital, there's also something about that that I'm, I'm sort of interested about. And I also want to emphasize a little bit the thing that uh, land connectedness uh, and, and sacred site that can be standing stones and ancient uh, burial mounds, but we should not limit our thinking of land sacrality to those uh, things. Part of the reason being that so much has been have been destroyed that if we do that, then we are in fact we we don't have enough. Uh, um, sacred sites to, to to create proper land connection. I think. Cool. Um, so how to how to go about? Oh, let me just uh, go down here. Um, so how to go about recreating land connectedness? And I'll just share some thoughts that I've had about it here. Um, <clears throat> There are there's still a little bit the sort of tension, I think, a feeling of tension sometimes between attacks on our land connectedness. What you see here uh, to the well, for me it's to the left, but it might be to the right for you. Under the under the letters pressy video is a, a Norwegian rock figure called the troll cock <laughs> for obvious reasons, um, which was a famous uh, sort of uh, site that people went and vi visited and crawled on and so on. And then at some point, somebody just goes out and destroys it, hacks it off. Um, and um, so one day it's uh, the Norwegian landscape is found castrated in this way. This is an attack on, you could say, the anthropomorphism of the land, the, the subjectivity, the human, uh, almost the, you could almost say the humanity of the land, the, the extended humanity of the land. So there's still this sort of feeling of tension between the subjectivity of the land and, uh, and um, sort of resistance towards it somehow. And one thing is, of course, that we should think about protecting what is left. Um, there are a lot of sacred sites that have been um, where we, we still have names on them and so on. Uh, and we should also consider so what farming, for instance, is life like. This is a couple of images from my childhood, what farming was like when I was a kid. You know, today, on the same fields there, you know, it's like Star Wars machines that goes uh, that goes over them. Um, in the village where I grew up, uh, perhaps 30 heritage protected grave mounds, so I'm told, have been uh, plowed down. Uh, probably two on my father's field fields. Um, and uh, and sacred wells have also been destroyed in this area. One has been drained or filled with concrete, just I think within the last ten years, something like that. Um, so so this is just to say that the the uh, the attacks on sacred landscape and thereby our land connectedness uh, are is an ongoing thing, I would say. And I also think, by the way, that it's important to note that 
we who are old worlders and perhaps have you know viking names with weird letters inside them and 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 speak a weird language of sort sorts like we are not and we should not think of ourselves or be thought of as less ruptured i think than for instance uh diaspora euro descendants who live in say north america or australia or something like that i think the rupture is much deeper than that it's in our perception of the world and it has been grinded into our reality from uh the, the earliest attacks on the uh the oak of donna this is saint boniface cutting down the sacred oak of of, of thor to the vandalizations of a weird little sea god goddess that has condensed some voices from the landscape um uh, it, it's an ongoing it, it and there there are more than a thousand years between these two uh cases of attacks on north european land connectedness um so it, it, it's the rupture is very deeply rooted and it's also you also see it in um you see it in relations to so many things you see it in relations to stuff like um the the crops the food crops that keep us alive in traditional animism and nordic animism people would personify uh crops so the rye for instance iconically in in northern germany and southern scandinavia is an important being that keeps people alive it gives us life hence it's divine so people would subjectify it they would worship it as a deity in a similar way as the maya maya in guatemala they worship the maize as a deity it's a similar kind of thing and you find these in english it's called corn dollies um personifications of the crop um all over northern europe uh, and when people have this very close relation with the crop and with the land and the whole farming process and they are then torn away from the land and in industrialization they stop being farmers and become uh, become uh, industrial workers then a lot of uh, people really had some deep uh, traumatic experiences of that actually alcoholism went bananas violence in uh, homes um or all kinds of radicalization and and you see this happening in in the late 19th century in the early 20th century in northern europe where there's a deep deep social despair and problems among uh, work workers populations i think part of part of the reason uh, between that is that this that is the fresh wound of having been uprooted from the land and people also have in northern europe this very i think touching reaction um the maya the, the maya they they say that you only get really full from the rice from your own village so sometime even though you might be a, a software engineer today or something in, in in a big city you will go back to the village that you come from and take some maize from the fields and then you get some of the real maize and that that land connectedness um uh, people uh, actually had a huge movement in northern europe towards allotment farming so people would make no allotment gardening sorry um so all around big north european workers cities sort of such as copenhagen or uh Göteborg in sweden or something like that you find these huge areas of allotment gardens where the uh workers that were farmers one generation ago they would go out and they would just 
grow a little bit of plants for themselves to uh, a very strong longing for the uh, contact with the uh, with the land in the face of uh, collab collapsed land connectedness and the social um, problems that they faced right so this is mostly just kind of a story actually about the rupture but of course it also uh it also point you know points towards what what can we do you know how should we start giving to the earth again in the old saga the inglinger saga the god odin ordains giving to the earth and guess what the earth is full of stuff that people from the pre-christian period has given to the earth Today, there's a whole culture of detectorists in, in, in Denmark, for instance, where it's legal, who are going around and finding all the stuff that's giving to the earth. Um, but they don't, I don't think they give anything back. They, 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 they are intensely, almost religious experience for them to find these things in the earth that were probably given as offerings uh, a thousand years ago. But are they giving anything back? I don't know, but I think they should. You know, And I think perhaps giving to the earth is something that should become a thing for all of us <laughs> um and as I've, as i've already sort of indicated a little bit i think we should also look to urban landscapes we live in cities now and here's a little important thing we shouldn't all live in the countryside because if we did every single speck of uh biodiversity in the world would have a, a hippie living on it growing uh, cabbage, right? <laughs> uh, there wouldn't be space for one single butterfly left, left in the, uh, on the planet if we left the big cities, all of us, and made nice little regenerative farming places in the countryside, as many of us, myself included, are dreaming about, you know? Uh, so, so, so I think we, with our land connectedness, we need to think cities. Uh, and one place we can look at the West African traditions. This is the Ile Ife uh, sanctuary for the creator god Uruduwa, the uh, all father and ancestor of the uh, of the kings of Ife. Um, I think we must also link with those uh, new places that somehow carry deep voices of the landscape uh, in them. Uh, as I was mentioned mentioning here the the little mermaid and perhaps others uh i don't i think we should not be too picky and idiosyncratic about what sacrality is um check this here this is an amazing uh iron age or viking age sa sanctuary in uh, central jutland that has been re-established why was it re-established? Well, it was re-established by a local town who would like to have some tourists coming there. You know? so, you know, but cool, that it is an ancient sacred site that has been monumentally re-established. The stones in the end of this ship setting, it's called, weigh 38 ton. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so... So that's sort of my little, some little open thoughts of how to uh, how to re uh, recreate land connectedness. Um, I have also worked on this a little bit from different angles, I would say. Um, 
one aspect I've worked with is calendar, where I wanted to, to use the passing of the year to understand uh, traditional uh, Nordic animism. I was inspired by indigenous strategies to uh, apparently many indigenous peoples, particularly in Australia, but also in North America, they use calendar as a way of uh, renewing traditional knowledge into our age. So I, I've been working with calendar and I think the passing seasons actually gives very concrete ways of, of uh, reconnecting with the land. For instance, um, having masqueraders move uh, move through the landscapes with light in the darkest time of the year. Um, I actually, I've anchored the renewal of a Yule time uh, um, masquerade where we're trying to basically bring back these uh, ideas that that into contemporary shape you know that ma masking sort of dark forces bringing light in the darkest time is uh, is a way of of uh, animating the world basically uh but with with uh we're trying to use contemporary uh contemporary ways of doing it you'll oh, oh. <laughs> uh you'll see that that you know, contemporary masks, for instance. Uh, so, and moving in contemporary cityscape. We're doing this Yule goat, as we call it in, uh, in uh, Copenhagen. And uh, another example of, uh, of a project that I've worked with is uh, links to totemism. If we start understanding totemism, tot totemic relations are kinship relations between humans and the cohabitants of the land. And I've worked a little bit with one, I think really important totemic relation in Northern Europe, that's Raven. Um, I've tried to introduce the use of the Raven flag, uh, a symbol of yeah, human kinship with cohabitants of the land. Um, so yeah, I think we must try to understand the wound that in many ways appears almost healed. We don't feel the pain that uh, the peasants in the early 20th century and late 19th century felt when they were uh, becoming alcoholics and beating up their wives and, and, and stuff like that, partly because of loss of land connectedness. We don't feel that, but we must, uh, so it's almost as if, the, the wound has scarred over, is it called scarred over in English when a scar form, forms <laughs> over a wound? Uh, the, the wound has healed, right? Uh, but not healed completely, you know? Um, the loss, we must understand that loss. Perhaps we must feel it again. But I also think we must be playful in our ways of relinking and not idiosyncratic. Be a little bit uh, careful about uh, nostalgia, uh, but try to renew these um, motives that mediate, that produce land connectedness in new and playful ways, I think. That's what I had to say. Um, it didn't take a whole hour, but uh, perhaps there are some questions or something like that.